<clears throat> Father, we thank you again for this beautiful, beautiful day that you've given us. Beautiful weather, blue skies, crisp air, beautiful surroundings, Lord, not just even outside with all the trees, and, but Lord, even inside with all the beautiful faces. Thank you for bringing us together today and thank you that we have this opportunity to, to sing praise to you, to pray and, and, and to take part in communion and, and now hear from your word is a, a privilege, Lord. And, and we don't want to take, um, advantage, uh, take that for granted. Lord, may, may we uh, completely focus on you this morning. May we be able to hear with our ears, Lord, uh, and, and, and Lord, uh, uh, receive with our hearts through the power of your spirit the word you have for us this morning that we would be changed all for your glory. It's uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, let's go to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. We are, we've actually been going through this series now for about nine weeks. This is our ninth week together. And sadly, we are closing up this book. Oh, thank you. This has been a great series. I don't know about you, but I've been extremely blessed going through. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible and just being able to really pour into it and study it afresh is just, man, it just, I get excited about it. So anyways, if you're not awake, I am. So uh, we're gonna be at chapter four and we're gonna be looking at verses 10 through 23. So we're looking at the last section of this book. Chapters 10 through 23 of chapter four. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go ahead and read the entire passage and then we'll take our time going through it. Paul says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory, and, be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this uh, book, Philippians, is actually technically not a book. It's an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul around 61-62 AD to a church located in the northern portion of Greece in a city called Philippi. Um, ten years prior to writing this letter, Paul visited the city uh, on one of his little journeys, missionary journeys. He was out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, he arrives at Philippi. He chooses actually to go to Philippi because he saw it as a, as a leading city in the region of Macedonia. And that was kind of how Paul worked. He was very strategic on where he planted the gospel. He wanted to plant it in a city where it was located in such a way that it could ripple out into the other cities in that region. And so he goes into this city and uh, what he would normally do with his partner, um, he would go into the synagogue. 
And that's where he would start. He would kind of, that's where there's some common ground. The, the, the Jewish people believed in the, you know, the Hebrew Bible. They believed in the, the, the God, the creator God, Yahweh. And so he would start there and kind of work his way to Christ. And, um, and you know, that's what he would do. But there was no synagogue in the city. In fact, there's not a lot of historical evidence to show there was a large Jewish population in the city of Philippi, at least at the time of Paul visited. Um, and so what he does is he goes out the city and he goes along a bank where there's some women, not even men, women, God-fearing women who are just holding a prayer service basically out there. And he talks with them and he proclaims the gospel and a, a well-to-do businesswoman named Lydia um, receives the gospel and, and she turns her life over to, to Jesus and she invites Paul and her partners to, to come stay at her house and, and they're a little bit hesitant but says she prevailed upon them. You Men, we know about that. It's kind of like that nag. Yeah, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So that's what happened and so they stood at um, Lydia's house and they she, Paul proclaimed the gospel there and her whole household ca uh, came to know Christ. Later on, Paul gets arrested and he's placed in a Roman, in the interior portion of a Roman prison. That's where they would put the really dangerous uh, uh, criminals, like the high security area. And they put Paul and his, little, his partner Silas in there. And God does some miraculous things in that jail. And as a result, the, the Roman guard who's, you know, standing uh, guard uh, realizes this is, this is all God. And so he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so he hears the gospel and he responds to the gospel and his whole household responds to the gospel. And that's the birth of the church in Philippi. And, and as Paul leaves and God blesses that church and it not only grows numerically, but it grows spiritually so much. So in fact, that decades after the letter to the Philippians, decades after Paul uh, is, is martyred, uh, another passerby by the name of Polycarp is writing letters to other churches and he cites Philippi as a good example of what it looks like for a church to grow in their maturity. I mean, he, he has a lot of, uh, uh, you know, good things to say. He's like, you know, this church in Philippi, they know the scriptures. They know it, they memorize it, they know how to teach it, they're proclaiming it, and they're also very generous. Despite the fact that they're not a very wealthy church, they're still generous providing for needs. And so after Paul leaves this city, um, he maintains a connection with them. It's a special connection. In fact, uh, in Philippians 1, he refers to it with using the Greek word koinonia, it's, it's a word that normally gets translated as fellowship. And, and fellowship is one of those words that gets used so much that we end up missing really what it means. Um, for a lot of people, fellowship, uh, the only difference between hanging out with family or friends, um, the only difference between hanging out and fellowship is that Christians are involved. Basically, that's what a lot of people think. Like, oh, we can just go to the, a coffee shop and, and do that, go meet a family, or, you know, get together and have a barbecue. And, and that's fellowship. As long as we're Christians, that's fellowship. And yes, there's a relational aspect to uh, fellowship, but that word is actually used to describe two individuals who go in on a business together. It's both of them are equally committed. Both of them are working together towards a specific goal. That is fellowship. And so Paul's saying, this, these Philippians, we are in fellowship to, for one, to one another. We are in partnership for the sake of Christ, for the cause of the gospel. And, 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 and so that brings him joy. Uh, eventually, Paul uh, gets arrested in Jerusalem and he's sent over to Rome to appeal his case before uh, Emperor Nero. And in those days, uh, if you were a prisoner and possibly Paul was uh, in, on, under house arrest, chained 24-7 at the wrist to a Roman guard, uh, in those days, the, 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 the Romans were not responsible for you providing for your basic needs. And so prisoners relied heavily on the you know, uh, gifts of family and friends. But of course, living in an honor-shame society, being in prison was very shameful. Knowing someone in prison was equally shameful, so a lot of prisoners were left to their own, you know, it was, it was a very bad situation. We don't know the situation Paul was in, but uh, he was in need, and the church in Philippi hear of that need, hear of his predicament, and they gather together, they bring together a collection that they want to send over to Paul, and they send it with a guy named Epaphroditus, one of their members, possibly a leader, we don't really know, but he travels mostly on foot, about almost 800 miles, uh, hard journey, almost dies, but he doesn't, and eventually goes to Paul, he delivers uh, the gift, and Paul is just overwhelmed 
And so he's inspired to write this letter to show how much he appreciates them giving the gift and also to encourage them and to give them further instructions because he's a pastor and that's what he does. But right at the beginning, go with me to Philippians chapter one, uh, verse three. Look how he just begins right right off the bat. He says, uh, chapter one, verse three, I thank my God in all my rem- remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now in English, that kind of reads a little clunky, but in the Greek, there's an emphasis on all and every. Basically, Paul's saying, I think of you all the time. And every time I think about you, I thank God for you all the time. And every time I thank God for you, I pray for you all the time. And his prayer is, is really that they would grow, continue to grow in their, in their love for one another, grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. Later on, beginning at, at verse 12, Paul gives the Philippians kind of an update on how he's doing. And he admits that he's going through some hard times. He's, he's going through some suffering, but he he views his suffering as a gift. If you, he, he says, this is a gift. The reason why it's a gift is because God is using my suffering to advance the kingdom. He's using my suffering to inspire other Christians to proclaim the gospel boldly and courageously. This is all great stuff. And yeah, I may die, but it's okay because in verse 21 of chapter one, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally in the Greek, to live, Christ, to die, gain. It's like my, Paul's life is just completely filled with Jesus, saturated with Jesus. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And then we get to verse 27, where Paul gives his first instruction, his first command, which is actually the main command that the rest of the letter is going to expand on. And that command in verse 27 of chapter one is only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word there for conduct yourselves is where we get the word politics. It's the idea of to be a citizen. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says that we as Christians are citizen of heaven or citizens of the heavenlies. That's the place where God dwells. We are citizens with God. We are citizens. We are part of his uh, eternal kingdom. And as citizens of his kingdom, we are to live our lives in a manner that is worthy or literally uh, fitting or appropriate for those who claim Jesus or who proclaim the gospel. And so practically, what does that look like? It looks like unity. Paul says it's, it's about, um, uh, let's see, uh, 27, he's talking about uh, standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It, it means not, you know, not being selfish, considering others' uh, um, problems or issues ahead of your own. It, it's, it's about humility. And, and, and the best example of that in chapter two, the best example of humility is found in Jesus in his life, that Jesus is God and, and he had every right to exercise his authority and his power while he was in this, on, this, uh, on this earth, but instead he chose to, to lay it aside and take on the posture, the role of a servant. And, and, and he was obedient to God the Father even when it led to his death on a cross. And as a result, he's, he's exalted, highly exalted above every name that is named so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess under in heaven and under the earth that Christ Jesus is Lord, a title that was only to be ascribed to the emperor. Emperor was to be Lord, not Jesus, but Paul's flipping that and saying, no, Jesus is ultimately the Lord. In chapter three, uh, Paul uses a, a Greek word loipos, which is a, where he were translated finally. He's not saying like he's coming to the conclusion. He's just like, as I approach the, en- the, the end of this letter, as I'm wrapping things up, he's got some more things to say. Uh, you all know that whenever a pastor says in conclusion, I still got 15 more points to go, right? The same thing, Paul's, so if ever I do that, I'm just being biblical, okay? Paul did it, so just deal with it, okay? So finally, he says, and, and he, he, he wants to warn uh, the church of false teachers. He's like, beware of these dogs, these, these cir- uh, uh, false circumcision or uh, evil workers, uh, these individuals who are just focusing on what they do for God, not what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. 
He says they're, they're all focused about what, their, their resumes. And, and Paul brings up thinking, you know, listen, I, I have a pretty impressive resume myself, but uh, uh, taking on the, 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 the position of like an accountant, I'm, I'm taking inventory of all these accomplishments, all these, all these things that I, I know and, and uh, 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 honors and prestige and everything that people would think is gain. He says, I consider it loss. I count it all as dung compared to the surpassing value, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. It's like, there's no comparison. Jesus is always gonna win. It's Jesus and always Jesus. He says, oh, that, that, that's who I'm gonna be focusing in on. I'm gonna be, I wanna be found in him. And it says, even if it leads to death, it's okay because eventually Jesus is coming back. And as Jesus is resurrected, we're gonna be resurrected with him. But then he adds, I want you all to know I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived, as some people say. I'm, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still learning. I'm still growing in my faith. And so I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take off the finance or the accountant hat. I'm gonna put on an athletic hat and I'm gonna be like a runner, just running this, this, this uh, race called life. I'm gonna be focusing in on Jesus. I'm not going to allow the, the, the allure of sin and my former accomplishments to distract me on my race. I'm not gonna let the, the, the shame uh, and the baggage of my past sins to, to weigh me down. I'm just gonna be focusing on Christ, focusing on that prize of eternity. And so he begins in, in chapter four by saying, therefore, my beloved, as citizens of, of God's kingdom, he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Now, when we come to our, our section this morning, this has, you know, probably some very, very famous passages that you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, I memorized that. Maybe some of your first memory verses were part of it. And you've heard maybe countless sermons about contentment, about uh, generosity and about uh, giving. Uh, and and that's, all, that's all here and that's all important. We're gonna go through it. But there's ultimately, uh, Paul doesn't end his letter by focusing in on those things. Instead, he, it's almost like he peels back the, the curtain and he gives us a behind the scene look at the, what's really going on right here, what he really wants us to understand. Go with me to chapter four, verse 20. Chapter four, verse 20. So here, um, Paul says, now to our God and father. Now I just want to just stop there because this concept of God as our father started in the Old Testament. God is described as a father who, you know, is, is in dealing with his children, uh, Israel. But in the New Testament, it's fleshed out in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus prays to God as his father. He encourages his disciples to pray to him as your father. And we are encouraged in the new rest of the New Testament to see God as our father as well. And, and this is, again, one of those truths that if you've been part of church for a number of years, it's like, okay, I know this. It's nothing new to me. But again, it's, it's one of those amazing truths that is so familiar that it misses, it, it loses its punch. God is our father. God is not some distant cosmic being out there in the netherworld or in the universe who doesn't really care about us. In the first century, that's kind of how the gods were, the gods and the goddesses that the people of Rome worshiped. These gods and goddesses, I mean, they had their own family issues to deal with. If you ever read Greek mythology and all that, it's like Jerry Springer show right there. You know, it's just crazy. And they would only pay attention to you if you were really devoted, if you said a lot of words in your prayers, if you did this ritual a specific way, if you went through this um, thing or whatever kind of mystery cult or whatever, that's when the gods would may look to you and acknowledge you. The Paul's saying, no, our God, the God we serve, because of salvation, because of our identity in Christ, God is our father. He is our father. There's this close, intimate relationship we have with the creator of the universe. Again, an amazing truth that we go, ah, uh, I hear. No, hear it again. Paul repeats himself a lot. In fact, remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul says, you know, it, it's not, I don't hesitate writing the same thing over and over again. You know, it, it's for your, it's a safeguard for you. It's to help you 
to encourage you. God is our father. And, and I get it. Some people, you know, they have a hard time accepting this truth because either their father was not present or their father was a real creep. And so what they end up doing is they attaching their earth, the characteristics of their earthly father to their heavenly father. So if my father was distant and cold, then my heavenly father is the same way. If my, my, my earthly father didn't listen to me, didn't love me, so therefore my heavenly father is kind of the same way too, which is, the, it's, that's completely wrong, by the way. God is not like that. You know, God, God, our earthly fathers are not perfect, but our heavenly father is perfect. Our, some of our earthly fathers um, may have done good things for others, maybe not us, but our heavenly father is the source of all good. He, he is all good and all just, all right. You know, our, our fathers may have shown love in a, in a certain way to us, but again, our heavenly father is the source of all love. It's a big difference between our earthly fathers and our heavenly father. Our heavenly father is awesome. I mean, some of you have had awesome fathers. I would say that. I had an amazing father, but he does not compare to my heavenly father. Amen? God is our father. So he says, now to our God and Father be the glory. There's a definite article there. It's not just a glory, it's the glory. The word that he uses is doxa. It's the idea of splendor, of majesty, of brightness, of awesomeness, basically. That's what glory is. Now to God, to to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, literally to the ages of the ages, amen. This is the focus. This is what Paul wants us to understand. Yes, it's in, in contentment and generosity and, and giving. That's all important. We're going to go through that. But the main focus is God. It's like Paul's pulling back the, the curtain again and giving us the behind the scenes look of what's going on. Even though we may not see God working, God's working. And what we're going to see, read in our passage today is, uh, I believe, four things. God, number one, God is the one who gives us joy. God is the one who teaches us. Number three, God is the one who strengthens us. Number four, God is the one who provides for us. It's all focused on God, which I think is just such an epic way to end this letter, particularly to a a group of Christians who are living in a world where Christianity is becoming more and more unpopular where there's more hostility going towards people who follow Jesus. Because again, these Philippians were living in a city that was uh, considered a Roman colony because of past um, allegiance to the empire and to Caesar, they were given that title. Uh, Basically, being a Roman colony, it was like when you walk in their city, it's like you're walking on Italian soil. That's kind of how the idea was. And so as as such, those who lived in the city automatically became or were kind of grafted in as uh, citizens, uh, Roman citizens. And there were some privileges uh, part to that. But Philippi um, ended up earning the, the nickname Little Rome because its architecture was built like Rome. The clothing that they wore was like Rome. The money that they used was Roman. The language that they spent, the majority of the language was Latin. It was just Rome through and through. And Christianity was viewed as a threat to Rome, not just a threat to Rome. Eventually, uh, one of the the guards, high guards, uh, high up there guards to uh, Emperor Nero would claim that Christianity was was a threat to society, to humanity itself. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And so again, Paul focusing in on God and who God, God's the one who brings, gives us joy. He's the one who teaches us. He's the one who, who strengthens us. He's the one who provides for us. It's just an amazing encouragement, I would think. It's like, that's a great way to end his letter, this amazing letter of Paul. So let's kind of backtrack. Let's start at verse 10 as we're going to f- focus on, on the first, uh, first thing. God is the one who gives us joy. Paul says, but I, what? Rejoiced. It's the Greek word, kairo. This is one of the big themes, major themes of the entire book, joy. And remember, there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness has to do with your situation. You get married, you're happy. You buy a new car, you're happy. You get a new dog or pet or a new gun, you're happy. 
you know. <laughs> that resonates here, right? <laughs> a chainsaw? Yeah, you guys ready? You buy a new flannel. You're, you're happy. Um, <laughs> you grow a beard. You're happy. <laughs> I should stop. Okay. But joy is something that you can experience regardless of the situation. That's why I like to define joy as this resilient gladness. It's the kind of gladness, the kind of joy that the world is pursuing. This, this um, soul-satisfying, sustainable joy. And that cannot be found in anything or anyone in this world. It can only be found, he, Paul says, in the Lord. He is the source of joy in who he is, that he is our Lord, he's our master, he's our ruler, he's our king, he's our savior, he's our advocate. And what he's doing, that he saved us. Again, he, he, in Colossians, he's transferred us from the, from the kingdom of, of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's, uh, it, he, he, is, he is building his kingdom and how he's doing that is he's putting together a motley crew of individuals who are in Christ, who come from different backgrounds, different personalities, different ways of looking at things, and he's using us to further his gospel, which is just amazing. And one day he's coming back. He's going to officially establish his kingdom and we're going to be with him forever and ever in a place where there's no more crying, no more weeping, no more death, no more sickness, no more evil. It's just going to be amazing. And we're going to be with him forever and ever. Amen. That's where we find our joy. And again, I've said this before over and over again. You can go back and listen to some of the sermons. It's like, you're just repeating what you just said. Exactly. Because I want you to get it. Some, it, sometimes, it, you know, the more you hear it, the more it starts. Okay, now I get it here. I, I don't want it just to stay here in your head. I want it to now trickle down into your heart. I want you to believe it, build convictions off of it. And I want you to then live in light of it. That joy comes from the Lord. God is the one who ultimately gives us joy. So that's number one. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He uses the Greek word megalos, which is, I, I, I rejoiced very much. I rejoiced to an extraordinary extent, exceedingly. In other words, I have been really, really, really happy, glad, celebrating in the Lord. Well, why, Paul? Paul continues, that now at last, or literally, it could be translated, because now at last, you have revived your concern for me. The word he uses for revived is a, botanical term or horticultural term. I don't know if that's the proper way of saying it, but it's basically described like a plant that uh, springs out of the ground after winter or a flower that reblooms. And, and so that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I, 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 I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have sprouted afresh. You have bloomed again your concern for me. Now the word that he uses for concern is the Greek word for neo, which is another big theme in this entire book. Joy is a, is a big theme. And this Greek word for neo is a big theme. It's repeated over and over again. The word there means to set one's mind on, to lead our thoughts mindset towards something to focus in on something and the idea is to focus in on something and act upon it he says i i i i'm so glad in the lord i rejoice greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me indeed you were concerned there's that greek word for neo again um you were in, you were concerned before but you lacked the opportunity you you did it was not in the right season for whatever reason they couldn't really help him but when they had the opportunity they they started helping him basically have you ever um, encountered the phrase, I'm sending my good thoughts towards you? Yeah. On social, so, so, you know, usually the context is, oh, I'm, something, I'm struggling, someone's sick, they're dying, or something really bad's going on, I'm in great need. And the response you see on Facebook or whatever is like, oh, I'm sending my, my positive thoughts towards you. I hate that. <laughs> that annoys me to no end. Because it's like, okay, what, for one, what does that mean? And, and again, how does your positive thought, how do they help me? I mean, do I have to go to the store and purchase a, a positive thought antenna that I attach to my head somehow and then receive your positive thoughts? 
I mean, already for some people who are not firing on all cylinders, that's already a hard thing to just concentrate, you know, focus your thoughts. It's like, don't waste your brain power doing that. Doesn't make any sense. The, the, the Philippians weren't just sending positive thoughts to, to Paul. They, they were seeing, no doubt they were praying for him, which is really important. They were praying for him, but they were also trying to find a way to help him. And, and, and there was a part, a season where they couldn't help him for, again, for whatever reason, maybe they just didn't have anyone to go or they didn't have enough money collected. But when they were able to, they sent a gift to Paul something that would encourage us as Christians to not just send positive thoughts to other follow or believers uh, who are in need, but to have a genuine concern where we're actually trying to figure out how can I help you? How can I meet that need? And that's, what, that's what really what we should be doing. That's what the Philippians were doing. Paul's just like, I'm rejoicing in the Lord because of that. Verse 11 he says, not that I speak from want or not that I'm continually uh, speaking according to uh, uh, falling short on something or in being in, uh, lacking uh, something. Paul, Paul's like, you know, listen, I, I'm not saying this to like guilt trip you into like giving me more money. Like I'm saying, oh, you know, you, what you gave me really didn't supply my needs and could you send some more? You know, he's not saying that. In the first century, there were these... Um, uh, teachers and philosophers who would travel around town and they would charge uh, money uh, to be heard, basically. And uh, these individuals were notorious for guilt tripping people into giving them more money. Like, oh, well, thank you so much for this contribution. You know, yeah, it's, even though I was here for 10 days and it's really expensive in the city and I might not survive my trip home, but thank you anyways. It's just like kind of that guilt, like, oh my goodness, fine, here you go. Paul's like, listen, I don't want you to think that way. I'm not, not that I speak from want, not that I'm speaking according to what I'm lacking. He says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. The word content, uh, atarke, uh, wait, atarkes, I think that's how you pronounce it, is a, Stoic, uh, is, a, is a term that the Stoic philosophers would use all the time. It was, a, it was, a, it was basically the, the, the goal for humanity. It was, it was the idea to be completely satisfied in, their own, in one's own mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual abilities. It was the idea to be completely self-sufficient, self-reliant. That's what they understood, the idea of content. Paul is going to transform this word uh, to, not, to, to not focus on self-reliance, but really Christ-reliance. That's where he's going he's to go. Now, he uses the word, I have learned to be content. The word learned just means to be instructed, to be taught. And uh, grammatically, it means that it was over a period of time. Paul didn't just, you know, snap his fingers and he learned how to be content. It was like, oh, there is, I went to a seminar and now I learned how to be content. No, it was a process. It took some time and however long it took, by the time he was done, he had learned what it means to be, to live, to exist uh, in contentment, in sufficiency in Christ, in whatever circumstance he, he encountered. Verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. And the word there is literally, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humiliated. And I also know how to live in prosperity, how to abound, how to be in abundance, to have more than enough. What's interesting is, is, is this, when Paul says, I know, you know, he uses the word oida. And um, let me geek out for a little moment. So bear with me. It'll make sense at the end, but um, there are two Greek words that are majority are used majority of the time in the New Testament to, to, to refer to to know. That's a gnosko and oida. Uh, gnosko comes from a word that means knowledge, and it's knowledge that is based or rooted in experience, and as such, it it progresses. And so, for example, I know my wife and my kids. You know, it's not just I hear about them. No, I'm living with them. I'm experiencing them. I'm talking with them. And the more I stay with them and live with them and, and talk with them, the more I get to know him, if that makes sense. That's a gnosko. I know my wife and my children. Oida is more intellectual. Um, it, it's 
technically, um, it, it, well, it's a knowledge that is more conclusive. It's not progressive. It's, since it's intellectual, it's more conclusive. And technically, it's a present tense from the Greek word adon, which means to see or perceive, but it's used in it's used as a present. So if you're going, blah, 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 what does that mean? Basically, it means to have seen something in the past means to know something in the present, if that makes sense. I've seen something in the past and now therefore I know. Uh, and, and again, it's a conclusive no. So I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know and I understand what I know. And so did Paul experience being made humble? Yeah. Did he experience living in prosperity? He did experience that. But he, Paul's not wanting to focus in on this idea of experiencing. He's focusing in the fact that I know, I know intellectually, I literally, I went to school. Some people would call this the school of hard knocks. Solomon may call this the school of life. But it was a school that, where it was a school where Paul learned how to be content in any and every circumstance. And again, it's like if, 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 if Paul's like pulling away the curtain to get a behind the scenes, look at what's going on. Ultimately, God is the one who teaches. God is the one who's teaching Paul. Uh, you, you, so this is a number. So number one was God is the one who gives joy. Number two, God is the one who teaches us. In Paul's case, it was to teach him what he's focusing on, teach him contentment in whatever circumstance. Uh, throughout the Bible, Old Testament, you go to Proverbs, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Exodus, the Psalms, uh, God is described as the teacher of his people. In Psalms uh, 71, 17, the psalmist says, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. Yes, are there circumstances that Paul went through? Yes, were there people that influenced Paul? Yes, but behind the scenes, God was working. And ultimately, God was the one teaching Paul. He says, I learned. It was, it, was a, it was rough. It didn't happen overnight. I didn't clip my fingers. It was a process. I learned how to be content. And now because of that, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know and I understand how to live, how to live through humiliation, how to, to, to live through that in, in such a way that is glorifying to God. You know, if you're humiliated, some people's reaction would be to be angry, to, be, to complain. Paul's like, no, 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 I, I've learned how to deal with that. I've also learned how to live in prosperity, not boasting in my prosperity, not, not uh, uh, trusting in my prosperity, but still trusting in the one who prospers me. Um, there's a poem, um, that many in our world could identify with. Uh, it, it goes like this. Um, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves, the cool and dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but I, it, it was 20 I wanted to be, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted to be, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Contentment. <laughs> I, I, I once saw a, a, a show, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it was like Finding Your Dream House or something. And it was this lady and, and she was just, she was literally crying to the camera saying, oh, I live in such a small house. They only had one kid, no dogs or anything and a pretty decent sized house. But she's like, oh, it's just, it's so small. There's no room to be. I literally feel like I'm suffocating in my, my home is like a coffin to me and I need to find my dream house. And the end, by the end of the show, she found this beautiful ranch style house, like on two acres, forget how many acres, but it was like huge, huge, per amazing price, beautifully done. No, didn't have to do any reservations whatsoever. It was a dream house. 
they did a, a, a follow-up. It's like, yeah, at the very end, it says, okay, uh, five months later or something, they did a follow-up. And she's like, you know, this is just really too much house. <laughs> it's just like, you know, this, this it's just too hard to clean. And it's like, oh, I think we're going to go ahead and look for a much smaller house. It's a lot easier, more simple. You just want to like reach into that, TV and just smack the living daylights out. Like, what is going on with you? But if we're honest, how many of us struggle with the grass is greener on the other side of the fence mentality? Like, gets quiet. Ooh, yeah, convicting. (laughs) Rena, you know, yes. We're honest with each other, right? These are all liars right here. Um, They're not being truthful. No, but it's the idea, you you have people saying, well, you know, if, if I just get this job, everything will be great. And then they get that job and they're like, you know what? This job isn't really what I thought it was. A, you know, it's not really what it was meant out to be. It's a little bit more difficult. Or I, I just need to get this job because this job will be a lot better than the job I'm currently in. So they get that new job and they're like, you know what? That other job that I had was a lot more fun. Have you ever heard that, had that? You know, like, oh, you know, I just, I, I don't like to be single. I need to be in a relationship. So now I'm in with a relationship with someone, but I don't really care for them. And this person seems more promising. And, and this one actually has a job. So I'm going to go to this person. And okay, and, 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 and okay, now, now I want to get married. And okay, now I want to have kids. And now my kids are older. Now I want them to go and uh, leave me. And now my kids are gone. And now I want them back. And yeah, 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 wah, wah, wah. Dealing with this idea of contentment. Being content. Paul says, I learned how to be content. It was not easy, but God was faithful. God worked. God taught me how to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Paul had a private instructor, but Paul had to be a willing student. You know, God God is willing to, to, to teach, but he's looking for willing students to hear. Paul was that willing student. So we kind of have to understand as followers of Christ, we have a private instructor in our life. God is working. You may not see him, but he's working in the circumstances and the people that come into your path and whatever goes on, God's at work. He's working in your life to change you, to to, to teach you, to mold you and shape you into the image of his son, Jesus but you've got to be a willing willing, uh, student to receive it. Paul was that. He says, and I I learned, now I know. I know what it's like to be humiliated, how to live through that. I know what it's like to live in prosperity and to live through that in a way that's God-honoring. He continues on, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret the word he uses there, it's, it's in the perfect tense. It's, I, I learned the secret in the past and now nothing has changed. It's the Greek word, muio, uh, and it, it was a word that was used by the mystery cults of his day. The mystery cults, the way they worked is like you, in order to understand the secrets of the gods, you know, destiny and fate and uh, understand who you are in relation to the gods, you need to learn the mystery, the secret. You need to, perform certain rituals. You need to go through certain uh, uh, rites, some like passages, you know, rite of passage in order to earn this stuff. The, the word itself literally means to have been initiated. You are now in the in crowd. You, you know the secret. And now that you know the secret, you got to keep hush, hush. Don't tell anybody because why? It's a secret. But Paul says, Paul, what Paul's going to do is he's going to just blow the lid off of that. And he's going to say, I'm going to tell you the secret. He says, I know the secret. I've learned in the past. I know it even now. I know the secret of being filled, the idea of being satisfied. I know the secret of going hungry, literally being famished. I know the secret of both having abundance, being, having more than enough to spare, having excess and suffering need literally to be in destitute. How, what, what's the secret, Paul? What's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This passage gets so pulled out of context like all, so many times, particularly with like athletes, You'll see, you know, uh, football players, they'll have it on their jersey somewhere. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You know, you know the boxers will have it on their belt. I can have all things, you know, I can do all things 
to God who gives me strength. Uh, on runners, I've seen it on their shoes. You know, Philippians uh, uh, 4, 4.13, they'll have that passage. I could do all things. And it's the idea is like, well, you know, God will give me the, 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 the strength that I need, will give me everything that I need in order to win this race, in order to win this game, in order to win this match. And that is not what Paul's talking about here. Completely not. The context here is about contentment. The context here is being, is, is learning, knowing how to live through these situations in a way that is God honoring. And so number one of this passage, it was God is the one who gives us joy. Number two, God is the one who teaches us, who's a willing teacher. We have to be willing students to learn. And this is number three, God is the one who gives us strength. So he says, I can do, I can continually, I continually have the force and the ability to do all things through him, literally in him. Who's the him referring to? Back to verse two, the Lord. In the Lord, in Christ, who strengthened, who's continually strengthened me, making me strong. I can go through any of these things. I can go through any experience, whether it's a good experience, whether it's a bad experience, I can go through it in a way that is God honoring. Not because of my own strength, because of God who strengthens me to get through that. Some of us, uh, you know, go through maybe this, you know, watching or maybe even now are going through or have gone through situations where it's um, really tough, really hard to the point where it's, you, you, you feel, um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been punched in the stomach by a mean kid how that feels. It's just like, it makes you feel like you're going to vomit and you can't breathe. Or if you've been on a swing and you fall back and like land right on your back and all the air wind just gets out of you and you're like, some things that we experience can feel like that, right? We're just going, I want to vomit. I can't breathe. Sometimes it's just, it seems so exhausting mentally, physically, spiritually, just you're just exhausted by what you're going through. And like, there's just no way I can keep on moving forward. But then you realize you start moving forward. How is this possible? Well, it's not in your own strength. You're not that smart. You're not that powerful to do that within yourself. I mean, that's what the, the, the world wants to say that, right? You, you've got an inner lion in you and you just need to let it out and let it roar, right? Katy Perry, the eye of the tiger, you're gonna hear me roar. Maybe I'm completely out of like, shows my age maybe a little bit here, but it's that idea that there's something inside of you and you just need to believe and trust in yourself and you have more strength than you know. No, the strength doesn't come from me. It only comes from him. For my relationship with Christ, that's the only way. God is the one who gives us the strength to go through the hard times, to go through the good times, all in a God-honoring way. He continues on verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well. You, you, you have, what you have done is, is correct. It is right to share with me in my affliction. The, the word he uses for share is, is the sukoinoneo. It's the, it's the idea of partnership. Again, it's close to the koinonia, fellowship. It's a partnership that they have. He says, you have done well in partnering with my afflictions. The, the, the affliction is thalipsis. It's the idea of pressure, oppression, d- distressing circumstances. Uh, Paul is, 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 is bringing up the fact that um, I'm going to my notes here. That basically, uh, uh, there, there's a there's a, a relationship between financial giving and gospel partnership. In other words, if you aren't giving, you aren't a partner. You're more like a consumer or a customer. You're just taking. Paul doesn't doesn't view the Philippians as customers. He views them as co-laborers. We you 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 have partnered, participated with me. They put skin in the game, even though many of them were not wealthy. They ended they 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 earned a reputation of giving sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully to support Paul and the mission. So this is good. What you have done is correct. It is suitable. It is right. 
Verse 15, you yourselves know, and it's perfect tense, you've known in the past and nothing has changed. You still know now. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the end, or, or at, I don't know, at the end, at the first preaching of the gospel, or literally in the beginning of the gospel, when you first heard the gospel, when Paul first visited the city, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Really significant there. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once. Literally, you sent it once and you sent it twice. More than once for my needs. Yeah, that's pretty impressive right there. And, and Paul's, Paul's, Paul rejoices in that. It's a good thing. It's something that we should be, as, as a church, be inspired for. You know, many people are annoyed when the church brings up the idea of money and, and, and giving, and some pastors actually will avoid the topic altogether because they don't want to stir up any emotions or any controversy. But Paul does, isn't, isn't shy about bringing up this topic. In fact, he, he brings up the, the, the benefit of, of this giving here. Uh, in, in verse 17, he says, uh, not that I seek the gift, not that I'm just searching or striving for this, this gift, the, 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 the financial gift. Not that I seek the gift itself, but on the, on, on the other hand, I seek for the profit. The Greek word there for profit is karpos, which literally means fruit, it means a harvest. It's, it's, it's the return. Uh, in... Um, in, in chapter one of Philippians, one uh, verse 11, Paul prayed that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Um, in, in later on in, in verse 25, uh, Paul gives the, 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 lets them know that he's laboring for their progress and joy in the faith. He's like, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the, 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 that fruit of righteousness. I'm looking for your, your, the, the evidence that you are maturing and growing in your faith. Not the gift itself. I mean, I benefit from that. But what I'm really looking for is the evidence of, of, of your maturity, that you're loving the Lord more, that you're focusing in on him, what he loves, and you're loving each other and you're serving one another. That's what I'm looking for. And guess what? That, that, that fruit, he describes, it's, it's, it's increasing. It increases to your account. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 20, Paul, uh, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This fruit, this fruit is an eternal fruit. It's, 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 going to, it's a blessing that we are gonna receive uh, in, in the future. He says, and that, that fruit's increasing, continually increasing into your account. He said, that's what I'm looking for, not the gift. Like I said, if you didn't give me anything, I'd still be okay because I've learned how to be content in any and every circumstance. I'm good. I mean, I did benefit from it, so thank you. You did a good job. You did, you did something very well. But what I'm seeking for is the evidence, the fruit of that righteousness growing up, growing in you, increasing more and more and more and more into your lives. Verse 18, he says, but I've received everything in full. It's almost like he's giving a receipt, kind of letting him know, hey, listen, you know, what you sent over, I just want you to let you know I have it. I've received everything in full and I have an abundance. I've, I, I, it's, it's over and above. I am amply supply, uh, supplied. The word there is plerao. It literally means to be crammed, to be furnished, to be completely filled. I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And this is how he describes it. He describes it as a fragrant aroma, literally a, a good scented smell, an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable offering, well-pleasing or fully agreeable to God, it's just, it's, again, it kind of brings up this uh, the imagery of temple worship here. In Hebrews 13, um, 16, the author says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So Paul's basically saying, you know, what you did was good because it provided for my needs. But I just want you to let you know, I, I don't really, I don't, it's okay if you didn't send it. I wouldn't have thought bad about you because I've learned how to be content. But you sent it, 
I received it in full. In fact, it's, I'm, I have more than enough. I have enough to spare. I'm, I'm thankful for that. He says, you, this act that you did, this the giving to, to me, to my need, was an act of worship to the Lord. He says, that's a great thing. So, oh wait, verse 19, this is where it will go. And he says, and my God will supply all your needs. And again, he uses, when he says supply, he uses that same Greek word, plero, to cram, to fill completely. My God will fully satisfy all your needs according to the riches, according to his wealth, abundance. And guess what? That's never gonna go run dry. The riches in, where's the source of those riches? In glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your needs. There's a, a, a group, uh, a, another sect, a denomination, kind of a church movement. It's called like the prosperity gospel that sees this and takes it in a way that the Bible doesn't take it. It's the idea that, oh, I, I need... I need my car payment bill. Well, guess what? God's going to provide for that and you're going to get it paid. Uh, I have, need my mortgage to be paid. Oh, don't worry. God is going to supply all your needs. You're going to get that bill paid. Uh, I, I need to get a job. Don't worry. God will supply and give you the job that you need to provide for your family. And they take it that way. But the word that he uses for need literally means what is necessary for work. What is necessary? God will supply everything that you need in order to do the work that he has called you to do. Basically, that's what he's saying. This doesn't mean he'll always pay your bills. I mean, if he does, hey, praise God for that. But he will give you everything you need to do the work that he calls you to do. So that's number four. God is the one who provides. So number one, God is the one who gives us joy. Number two, God is the one who teaches us. He's the willing, the instructor. We have to be the willing student. Number three, God is the one who strengthens us. It's not in ourselves. It's not in how amazing we are. It's, it's all in our strength in, is, is from Christ. Um, and then number four, God is the one who provides. And so that's why he brings up this praise. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Men, what I just kind of want to camp out real quick on this on this idea of what the the, the Philippians did, the, the gift that he gave them. Paul, no doubt, was in need, and Paul was a man of prayer, and so no doubt, Paul was praying. God, you know the situation I'm in. You know I'm I'm struggling financially. I may not have enough money to buy some food, or maybe even clothing for weather. I don't know what the, whatever the situation was. Paul was probably praying to God. God, you know the need. Could you please fill that need? And we've talked about that before last week, that God is so good. Prayer is, you know, God listens to our prayers and he responds. Sometimes not in the way we want, but he still responds. But here in this case, God responded and said, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and provide for that. Now he could have just, oh, here's a pack of money and floated it down to his table. I mean, he could have done it. He's God, he could do whatever he want. Instead, he chose to use a group of Christians at a church that wasn't very wealthy to begin with to provide for his needs. What an amazing, like, opportunity, I think. Paul's like, I prayed for God to provide for my needs. And guess what? He answered it with you. He used you to fill my need. Isn't that amazing? You get, and this again, it brings up the idea of why, you know, why the church is so amazing. Is that God is working. We all have been baptized with one spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We've been put into one, one body, one household. And with that spirit working in us and through us, God will use us to answer prayers of other saints. Think about that. God wants to use you to answer the prayers of others. What an honor. God, I don't deserve that. Are you kidding me? Really? Me? I, I, you know, I'm not that smart. I'm not that clever. I'm not that skilled. You want to use me? Yes. 
Someone's praying. They need help. They need encouragement. I want to send you to encourage them. Someone's lonely. I want to send you to go visit them. Someone's in need. I want you, because I prospered you, I want you to go meet that financial need. It's going to be, it's amazing that we get to have that, that, that honor, that privilege. Lord, can use us. Ultimately, again, God is the one who provides, but he, he, he sometimes chooses to use us, little old us, to answer that provision. Again, so amazing. See, so closes up here. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ. Welcome them. Express your well wishes to them. Embrace them. The brethren who are with me greet you. And look at what he says in verse 22. All the saints greet you. And he's talking about probably all the saints in, in Rome. All the, all the Christians, brothers and sisters who are here, uh, greet you. They welcome you. They, 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 they're, they're praying for you. They love you. And then he says, especially those of Caesar's household. Who was the Caesar at this time? Nero. Not a nice guy. A guy who was notorious for being kind of almost like bipolar in the sense that if you caught him on a bad day, you're most likely going to die. If you caught, caught him on a good day, you might almost die. You know, it's like that was kind of him. And he just got worse. I mean, he murdered his family members to keep his throne. I think he murdered his mother, murdering a whole bunch of people just to keep his power and all that. Um, not a nice person. This, this word for household literally means a residence or a domestic establishment. So that not only refers to the family members in that household, it also refers to the, the servants, the slaves, and maybe even the guards of that household who serve in that household. So whoever these individuals are, these are saints. These are followers of Jesus from Nero's household. It's like, whoa. I mean, this is, this is one of those, um, like, like the cherry on top at the end of this letter here, reminding the Philippians that the power of Rome can't ultimately stop the power of the gospel. Earlier, Paul spoke of the fact that his suffering was being used to advance the gospel. And here we see that it is indeed advancing, even in his imprisonment. He talks about the, there's, there's, there's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Caesar's household. And they're saying, hey, how you doing? Wow. Again, something that if you were just to we just read by and think, okay, cool. And those, those in Caesar's household, great. But you really take the time to understand it and go, this is significant. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'm advancing my kingdom and it'll advance anywhere I want it to go, even in Nero's household. Whoo, that's so cool. So then he closes off, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. So, number one, God is the one who gives joy. God is the source of joy. We need to hear that. We need to not just have it be in our heads, not to be this familiar you know, truth that we go, okay, yeah, moving on. Let that truth steep. If you, some of you guys like tea, Jim loves tea. Let it steep, let it marinate, go down into your heart. Let, so that you can believe it, trust in it, build convictions off of it and live in light of it. The only source of joy you're gonna find is in God. God is the one who gives joy. Number two, God is the one who teaches us. Even when we don't see him at work, he's always at work especially for us who are his people, we're his children. He's work, he wants to work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit to mold us and shape us in the image of his son. He's a willing, um, a private instructor that we all have, but we need to be uh, willing students to learn from him. Number two, so that's number two, God is the one who teaches. Number three, God is the one who strengthens us. We're gonna encounter a lot of things in this life, good things, bad things, hard things, really difficult things. And 
we would be foolish to think that we can get through it on our own strength, on our own smarts. You know, we don't have this inner lion inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't originate from us. It originates from God. It all comes from God. God is the one who gives us the strength to go through those tough areas of life, those areas where you feel like, oh, I just cannot make one step. God will give us the straight the strength to make that next step and the next step and the next step and the next step after that. Number four, finally, God is the one who provides for us and he delights in using us to answer those provisions. Such a great honor to, to, um, to be a part of. I, I'm telling you, it, it's just, it's the way God works, you guys, because we're ending this this, this uh, series on our pot blessing Sunday Thanksgiving meal. You know, where we're gonna be focusing on being thankful. My goodness, God is the one who gives joy. God is the one who teaches us. God is the one who strengthens us. God is the one who provides for us. How can you not be thankful for that? So this is so appropriate that we end right here at this point and we're gonna stay. We're gonna eat ourselves until we can't, Breathe and to be glorious, all for the glory of God and the joy of mankind. God approves of it. No, not of being a glutton. Save some for other people, everybody. Um, but be thankful. To be thankful. This is who God is. This is who God is. So you guys, thank you so much for being tolerant and letting me go through this amazing book, one of my favorite books. And let's go ahead and pray. And then we're gonna sing a great hymn, How Great Thou Art, because he is so great. And we have opportunity to worship him and serve him and um, for him to use us. It's just so great. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. So Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for this little letter that, Lord, I remember reading it as a young kid and picking out things and saying, oh, I like that, I like that, that's encouraging. But now as a almost 38-year-old reading this and, and, and reading it for a, a fresh, a fresh eyes and, and studying it, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at who you are, Lord. You are a good God. You are a loving God. You are a, a powerful God. You're a God who's working in the back, in the, in, in, behind the scenes, always working behind the scenes, even when I don't understand it, Lord. There are things in my life I don't understand. I think everyone else can say amen to that. But yet, Lord, you are working. Lord, your word says, he who began a good work in us will complete it. And so thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your love, your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who strengthens us. Thank you for providing for every, providing us everything we need to do the task that you've called us to do. And Lord, sometimes the task you called us to do is really hard. Help us, Lord. We need more. Lord, may we be willing students as you are a willing teacher. May we be willing students to receive your instruction and learn and grow. Lord, in, in, in all, Lord, may we, whatever circumstance we may find ourselves in this coming week, this next year, may we, may we experience joy. Lord, joy is not the absence of sorrow, it's the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is with us. He said he'll never leave us or forsake us. Hallelujah for that amazing truth. You are a great, great God. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.